Hey there, everyone. I'm Eric Mueller, and welcome back to The Eric Mueller Show, a podcast where we explore what makes any successful person's inner clock tick. Today, I'm happy to welcome another author and entrepreneur to the show. Mark Hirschberg is the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. From tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web to creating marketplaces and new authentication systems, Mark has spent his career launching and developing new ventures at startups, Fortune 500s, as well as academia. As an MIT alumnus, he helped to start the Undergraduate Practice Opportunities Program, also dubbed MIT's Career Success Accelerator. Mark's taught at this annually for the last two decades. At Harvard Business School, Mark also helped to create a platform used to teach finance at prominent business schools. He also works with many nonprofits, including Techie Youth and Plant a Million Corrals. Fun fact about Mark, he was once ranked as one of the top ballroom dancers in the country. He now lives in New York City, where he's known for his social gatherings, including his annual Halloween party. He's also been known to have a very diverse cufflink collection. Listen as Mark and I dive into the crucial skills for success that no one taught you. Let's head on over to the interview. All right, so welcome back to The Eric Mueller Show, a podcast where we explore what makes any successful person's inner clock tick. Today, we welcome to the show Mark Hirschberg, author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Mark, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to share some tips with your audience. Man, I'm excited. And and Mark, now in your book, you claim that someone can make $30,000 with your advice. Now, that's a pretty bold claim. How can someone actually do this using the career toolkit, Mark? It is, but it is true and not in a gimmicky way. Consider the following. You are 25 years old and you have a job offer for $60,000. If instead of taking that job as is, you've learned how to negotiate, you might have learned that from my book, from reading articles, from online class, from another book. My book's just one of many ways to do it, but you learn a little bit of negotiating skills. So instead of just saying, well, take it at 60, you go and negotiate and you go back and give a counter offer and you just get $1,000 more, $61,000. That's not a huge lift. If you then do nothing else in your career, if you sit in that job for the next 30 years, you've just made $1,000 more per year for 30 years. You just earned yourself $30,000 in one negotiation that took you just a couple minutes to do. That's just a quick back and forth, maybe an email or two or on the phone. You could earn yourself $30,000 in lifetime earnings in a matter of minutes. But of course, astute listeners say, well, there's no way I'm staying in a job for 30 years. And you're right. You will have other jobs. You will have promotions. You will have raises. And you will negotiate for more than just $1,000. So if you become a bearer negotiator, And we're not talking about being the world-class negotiator. We're not talking about hostage negotiations or solving the Mideast peace crisis. Just getting a little bit better, you can increase your lifetime earnings by tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars. So whether you learn it from my book or any other resource, learning to negotiate will have a massive ROI for your career. And Mark, how did you learn the skills that you talk about in your book? So we can talk a little bit about the the framework of the book. You might share that, but... 
How did you actually learn these skills that, that are not being taught in a traditional sense, whether it be in schools or, or on the job? By beating my head against the wall early in my career <laughs> because I was not taught them. And I learned early on, I was a software engineer when I first came out of MIT. I knew I wanted to be a CTO, a chief technology officer. I began to understand what do I need to do to be successful in that job? It wasn't just about being a good technologist. I needed leadership and negotiating skills and team building and knowing how to hire and all these other skills that no one taught me. So I had to learn. And back then, we didn't have great podcasts like this. We didn't have all the online resources. So it was a lot of trial and error. It was a lot of learning on my own. And it was a slow and at times painful process. But the point of my book and of podcasts like this and the class I teach at MIT and everything I do is to help other people get an easier path so they don't have to beat their head against the wall as much as I did. Yeah. I mean, do you have a good reason for why it's not being taught? It kind of it kind of blows my mind that, you know, some of these really crucial essential skills we need to have networking, negotiating, career planning, interviewing. Why is this not like a core focus in elementary school or high school or college? Really surprising because when you say things like networking, we've all heard that. It's yeah. not a secret, right? Our parents yeah. and teachers said networking, it's so important. Well, if it's that important, why didn't they teach it to us? There are historical reasons why it's not taught. High school is a relatively modern invention. It only goes back about 100, 150 years. Before that, we just learned on the farms. And it was only once we became a more industrialized nation, as we began to leave the farms and go into the cities and factories, that you needed basic skills to function. You needed to be able to read, not just turn the screw, because if you didn't know how to read, you didn't read the danger, don't walk into this spinning blade. You might see the blade not walk into it, but you don't know, don't walk into this door, turn off the lights. There were all these signs or things in the cities, and you need to be able to read to follow it. You need to do basic math to figure out how much am I earning and then what am I spending on food and rent and not just while I grow food and I eat some of it. So we had to start developing these skills in high school, but it was really designed for a basic labor workforce. And it has not adjusted to the modern workforce we have, which went from individual contributors, whether physical labor or, okay, I'm an accountant. I sit here and I do what my boss tells me to now, well, I'm an accountant, but I work with marketing and sales and engineering. We work in these cross-disciplinary teams that's a lot more team-based. Sure. Now, at the college level, colleges go back about 900 years, and colleges are run by professors. Now, I teach with a lot of professors. They're wonderful people, but professors are very knowledgeable about a very narrow area, their expertise. So when you go to school and you become, say, a pharmacist or a marketer, what happens is the professors in that discipline say, well, if you want to be a pharmacist, here are all the classes you have to take. You have to take some chemistry and some biology and some biochemistry and some math. If you do all this, then we will say, we're going to credential you and say, you have earned this degree. And what does that degree, says? What does that degree say? It says, you have achieved a certain level of knowledge, knowledge in marketing, knowledge in accounting, knowledge in physics. You've achieved this level of knowledge. It has never said you're a good accountant or a good chemist. It's never said you're a good employee. It's never said a company should hire you. It just says you have this level of knowledge. And again, mid-century, 
that was fine because you sat there as an accountant or a chemist and your boss told you what to do. And you said, yes, sir. And you went and focused on that narrow area. But in today's world, where we expect employees to take more initiative and to work with different people from different groups, you need a different set of skills, but the university system evolves much more slowly. I think it's going to be another 30 years or so before we fully incorporate this at the university level. Wow. Yeah, very insightful. And your book goes into three separate sections. So section one, you have your career. Section two, leadership and management, and then you talk about interpersonal dynamics. Would you just quickly, in maybe 30 seconds, just briefly summarize each of those sections and why they're important to know? The first section, chapter one, how you create and execute a career plan. Second chapter covers workplace skills like managing your manager, dealing with corporate politics. And then chapter three is interviewing. I focus a lot more on the hiring side because there's lots of content on how you can do as a candidate, but most of us have to interview coworkers, but are never taught. The second chapter, we cover leadership and then the people side of management, as well as the process side of management. The thing about these chapters, even if you're an individual contributor, even if you say, I don't want to have authority over other people, these skills are still going to help you as an individual contributor, or even your very first day on the job. The third section, the interpersonal dynamics, communication, negotiating, networking, and ethics. And Mark, really what I was so interested in when I first started reading about this book, and I haven't read your book yet and I plan to soon, but it's why do people need a career plan? So just right off the bat, you got to have a foundation for where you're going. I, I truly believe that, you know, small steps get you there, but you got to know where your focus is in the future. So would you just share why it's important for someone to have a plan for their career? Imagine if your company said, hey, listen, everyone, the next two years are super critical. This is going to be make or break this big two-year project we're going to do. And if we get it right, wild success. And if we get it wrong, who knows? We could downsize. We could go under. Really critical project next two years. Let's not do a project plan. Let's not do a budget. Let's just wing it. Right? <laughs> That's yeah. insane, right? We'd never do that at work. But now we have this project that's not two years. It might be five or 10 or 20 years into the future that makes or break our career, our lives, right? This is such an important piece. And do we want to say, yeah, let's just wing it. What we want to do is create a plan. Now, the mistake people make, they say, well, how can you create a plan? I don't know where I'm going to be in 10 years. Even if you do that two-year plan at work, we know when you lay out that plan, you're not going to follow it exactly. It's yeah. going to change. Even your goals might change. You might throw the plan out the window a year into and say, hey, new goal, new plan, and that's fine. The thing about your career plan is you create it. It's going to be more concrete early on. It's going to be fuzzier a little later. And chapter one, I talk about how to do this. And then you're going to adjust it over and over. Every six or 12 months, you're going to refine your plan as you would any project plan. So don't worry about perfection. Don't worry about getting it right. But as Eisenhower famously said, plans are worthless. Planning is everything. The act of planning is going to help. And while it doesn't guarantee success, not having a plan pretty much guarantees failure. Yeah. And you quote Professor James Rosenhaus from James Madison University right at the beginning of chapter one and, and say, always have a plan. Even a bad plan is better than no plan at all. So really ties it in like you just got to start doing this planning. And, and it's, it's really like taking action in and of itself, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And you don't have to do it alone. You can get input from hopefully your manager in HR, but from your peers, from your mentors, from your coworkers. You can get ideas listening to podcasts like this one. Don't feel you have to do it by yourself. Start and create your plan and then talk to people about it and get ideas and make the plan better and constantly revise. But don't feel this is something you and you alone have to do. You have to be responsible for it, but you can rely on others and ask others for help so it doesn't feel quite so overwhelming. Ask people about their career plans and what they've done to get ideas. Sure, and it, and it can be malleable. I love how you bring that up, that it, it can change from year to year, month to month, or decade to decade. I'm curious to ask, what types of questions should a person ask themselves to begin making this career plan? I start out with a list of about 20 questions. And by the way, these questions are available for free on the Career Toolkit book website on the resources page. Now, the questions, most people think, okay, what do I want to do? Do I want to do accounting or do I want to do chemistry? But you really want more fundamental questions. How many hours a week do I want to work? Do you want that strict nine to five job? Or are you okay saying, I don't mind working 50, 60, 70 hours if I think it's going to advance my career? Do you want to be working by yourself? Do you want to be working with other people? Do you want to be part of a large team? Do you want to be stuck to an office or do you want to be out and traveling a lot? But then even more important than those job questions are questions about our life and our lifestyle. Where do you want to live? When do you want to have a family? What kind of lifestyle do you want? What type of flexibility? How much money do you need to be happy? What kind of impact do you want to have on the world? Because it's not just about this particular job. It is about your life. Because if you have a great job, but doesn't lead to the life you want, then that job doesn't really meet your needs. So start by thinking about your life and then what type of job fits into that. Yeah. And Mark, I know that some of the inspiration for you to write the book, The Career Toolkit, was when you noticed candidates could answer some more mechanical questions about their specific discipline, like we said, pharmacy or, or finance. But when it came to the why or, or how they can create value, like that focus on value, I love how you mentioned that. So you noticed that they didn't know how to actually answer those questions. You were getting blank stares. So how can being an interviewer such as myself help me actually become a better interviewee and know the answers to some of those questions as far as how to bring value? One of the best things to happen to me in my career is when I start interviewing others. And I tell this story in the book. There were two candidates, one from MIT, my alma mater, and one from BU. And the MIT candidate was clearly smarter, but that BU candidate was so much more personable. And I started to struggle with this because well, I, I want the MIT, I'm a little biased and I want the smarter guy, certainly. But that BU guy, he just struck me as more personable, better to work with. He'd probably be better when talking to customers. I started to ask, what am I really looking for and why? What is adding value? And I also started to think, how do I come off in interviews? Because I'm also an MIT guy and I'm still a pretty nerdy guy, but I've developed some of these other skills along the way. Sure. How am I conveying myself? Now, let's think about public speaking. And by the way, interviewing is a form of public speaking. If you ever said, well, I want to be a better public speaker, or I have to do this very important speech. You don't just say, well, you know, I've thought about, maybe I even practiced it, but that's it. Really good speakers, ones who want to get better or deliver a good speech, you are going to record yourself and watch 
and then give yourself feedback or have others give you feedback. You also have probably watched other people speaking and have said, wow, I really like how she emphasizes her points. I really like how he uses the whole stage or her hand gestures, whatever you see, say, wow, that's really useful. I want to incorporate that in my own speaking. We learn from watching others. By interviewing other people and saying, wow, that was a really insightful answer, or I like how she organized her thoughts there and really sold herself on this role, how can I do that? So I would encourage everyone interview other people, even if that's not part of your job, even if your boss says, no, no, we've, we've got this, ask, can I just sit in and listen and watch? And then go meta. Ask yourself, not just was this candidate good or not, but why? And not just because, well, she's got all this great experience or he was able to accomplish this, but how was that conveyed? How can you do something similar next time you're a candidate? And this is going to help you improve and be much better at interviewing as a candidate by learning when you're on the hiring side of the table. And Mark, you also mentioned that people are always interviewing. What does that mean? Why, you know, How are we always being put on the spot, so to speak, in our daily lives? I recently had a job offer for a company to come in and consult, and it was basically given to me. I got it because I've been part of the New York CTO club for years. And as part of the club, we have a very active email list. So for years, people will email questions and give each other advice, say I have a challenge or propose thoughts. And even though I hadn't yet formally interviewed for this job, the interview itself is more just kind of checking a box. The way I got the job was from having all these insightful answers over the years. The woman who was hiring for the role said, I know you, I know how you think, I know your answers to so many more questions I can ask in an interview. I know who you are, I know you can deliver value to our company. I would love for you to do this. My interview was years of being active on that email list. I'm interviewing right at this moment. There are people listening to this podcast and are listening and saying, wow, Mark has some really useful insights. I think he would be helpful at our company, whether we're hiring for some executive role that he's qualified for, or maybe as a consultant. There might also be people saying, wow, Mark, he's spewing a bunch of stuff that I think is all BS. This is totally useless. Okay, well, I'm blowing that interview, but I am still interviewing. You are making a decision about me. And so all of us, as we put forth our image in a broad sense into the world, I don't mean picture, I mean our thoughts, our ideas, how we interact with others, we are putting forth an image and that is going to help us land or not land future jobs, even though neither we nor the people who might be listening at the time know about it. Yeah. It, it gets me thinking too about, you know, the interview process and things that I think about prior to recording a podcast episode such as this or interviewing for a job or, you know, applying for college. You come across bad questions and good questions, both as an interviewer and an interviewee. I've asked things that I've thought of you know, in hindsight, ah, that wasn't the best question. But what are some examples of some bad interview questions that that you've noticed in your experience, Mark, and why are they bad? My biggest pet peeve are the brain teaser questions, ah. or specifically bad brain teaser questions, because I do like brain teasers. So let's understand what's good and what's bad. A bad brain teaser question is the classic, why are manhole covers round? If you haven't heard this before, 
you can you can take a moment, pause the podcast. Why are manhole covers round? Now, the answers that they look for are typically either, well, it's really heavy. And so by being round, you can roll it on the ground instead of having to lift and carry it. Or that, well, manhole, manhole covers are heavy. And if they were to fall through the hole, they could really hurt someone. If you have a shape, say a square, you can imagine orientation on the diagonal where the square could fall through. But as a circle with a constant diameter, there's no way it can fall through. And this is a safety measure. Huh? So those are the two most common answers. Here's the thing. If you get asked this in an interview, you either know it or you don't. <laughs> yeah. I was probably asked this once and sat there and said, um, I don't know. That was it. That was the best I could do. Nothing came to me. On the other hand, there are questions like the famous, I've heard these called Feynman numbers. I've heard them called many different things. So a classic example, how many turkeys are eaten on Thanksgiving in the United States? Hmm. It's usually questions about numbers. How many ping pong balls fin in a plane? There's lots of variations. And when you get this question, you say, okay, well, let's see, turkeys in the United States. I know there's about 300 million people in the United States. It's actually a little more, but I'd accept 300 million, right? Better than there's 10 million people or there's 2 billion people. Get right. the right order of magnitude. Okay, so 300 million people. And let's see, we're going to assume average gathering is four people. It might be a family of four or it might be single people, but they get together with friends. So let's assume people gather in groups of four. So we're going to say 300 million divided by four. Okay. That's 75 million and one turkey per group. I'm going to say 75 million. And so that logic, it's not about, did you get the number right? Oops. Nope. Sorry. It's 78 million. Yeah. Or even if it's 150 million, you were able to show some rational thinking how you came up with these numbers, how you did your calculations. And that helps me see how you think. So I do like brain teasers, not just Feynman numbers. That's just a simple example that lets you show how you think and where you can get effectively partial credit. As long as your approach is right, who cares if you did a miscalculation? Because this isn't about getting the right answer. It's about seeing, can you think and solve problems, which is what I'm hiring you for. Yeah. So you would say that's the right way to answer a brain teaser is to at least give it a try, at least show some rationale and reasoning behind it and back up your response. That would be the right way to approach those. Yes. And for all brain teasers you get, you want to explicitly say, okay, I'm going to think out loud. And well, here's my thought. I'm thinking maybe I approach it this way. I'm going down this path. And you know what? I'm not sure this is going to work. Let me back up. Let me try something else. You want to let them in. You want them to let the interviewers see the wheels turn. Don't worry if you're making a mistake. They know you're thinking on the spot, a problem that you won't instantly get, but you yeah. want to show how you're thinking. So draw it on the whiteboard, talk out loud, admit I changed my mind or want to try a different way. That is not only good, that's what we want. Because we don't want to sit there. I've had this happen. I asked a candidate a question and they would sit there in silence for three minutes and then say, 42. And if 42 is not the right answer, I don't know. Well, were they mostly correct, but just made a mistake somewhere through or were they just completely wrong? So you really want to show your work, show how you think. And that even allows for discussion. I now know when I, when I interview people, I say, please talk me through it. What are you thinking? or if they're completely going down a wrong path. And that can happen, right? You just, you get in a mindset, we're under pressure. I can guide them and say, well, what if you think about it this way? 
And with that little nudge, can they think correctly? Can they use their abilities and logic and problem solving? And that's what I'm looking for. Not did you pick the right path on the first try? Right, right. And you're you're showing your work. It just reminds me of being back in math class in high school or college. Like, I don't care if you got the right answer. If you show your work, you know, you're going to get more credit. I mean, if you get the right answer, that's one thing. But, you know, sometimes they wouldn't even care if, hey, you write down 48, if that's correct. If you didn't show your work, you get zero points. That That's exactly. And that's the analogy I think of when I would do calculus problems. If you made just an arithmetic mistake, they say, oh, well, you lost one point. So you get 19 out of 20, but we see you did the right thing. You were just a little sloppy. Right. That's what you're getting here. But if you just give the answer without showing your work, they can't know it was just a, a minor math mistake as opposed to you you applied the wrong formula in trying to solve this. Yeah. Yeah. So Mark, on the flip side of this, so we know some bad interview questions and we also know how to combat those by answering brain teasers effectively. So we appreciate that. But what are some of your favorite interview questions, either to be asked or to ask others? The question I always start with is tell me about yourself. That's it. It is intentionally broad. And when I ask this question, I am looking not just for who you are. I certainly want that answer, but even how you answer it. Some people give me a five-man answer and they ramble not just about their career or their personal life or start out, well, I was born in a small cabin, a snowy <laughs> winter. Okay, great. How is this relevant? Yeah. Other people give very concise answers or give relevant answers or talk about how they give the answer and why it's relevant to the job. Some will focus on certain aspects over others. I look a lot at the meta. I look a lot at not just what is being said, but how is it being said? When you answer a question, are you giving me, if I ask about a project, for example, do you give me a chronological description? Do you mm -hmm. give me the problem, the process, the solution? Do you talk about I versus we? That tells me how are you looking at this? I know it's clearly by the size of the project. I know it wasn't you alone, but you just say I, 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 or do you say we, or do you say I did this and then we did that? That tells me how you think about your relationships to other people. I'm greatly oversimplifying in a 30-second answer here, Yeah, but it's really looking at these meta pieces of information that helps me understand who a candidate is. Yeah, that's incredibly insightful. I know that when I was preparing for residency interviews after pharmacy school, I, I had done some research on how to, how to prepare your elevator pitch, so to speak, your 60-second, you know, tell me about yourself, figuring that was going to be asked. And it certainly was. Um, I was on, on a flight, actually, and, and I had opened my notes app on my phone, and I was just kind of writing, you know, what my 60-second elevator pitch would be. And it came up, I thought it was pretty good, but I'm curious to ask you, Mark, I mean, what advice do you have in, in comprising an elevator pitch like that? Great question. You are a salesperson. When you are applying for a role, you are selling yourself to the company. And rule one about sales is think about the needs of your customer. So as you go into a job interview, think about what does your customer want? What are they looking for in this role? Certainly, they want to see some technical competency that you understand pharmacology or you understand accounting or whatever the discipline is. For a particular role, it might be managing people. They want to know, are you a good manager? Can you hire other people, retain people? Can you do project management? 
there might be something specific they've mentioned about we're a startup company. We're growing rapidly. We doubled in size in the last six months, and we're probably going to do it again. Aha, I'm hearing hiring. I'm hearing growth. I'm hearing lots of change. So as you look for these things, when you do that introductory pitch or really any answer, how do you lead it back to what the customer wants? If I know this is a fast-growing startup company, when they say, tell me about this project, I'm going to tell them about the project and what happened. But I'm going to talk about how during the project, we grew and changed as a company and how I was able to adapt to that growth or even use that growth to our advantage because that's what they're going to need. I will give that same story in a slightly different way to maybe a static company that says, yeah, we've been doing this for years. We're the market leader. Not a lot of things change around here. Right. Okay. I'm going to emphasize different aspects in that story. It's all about telling a story, isn't it, Mark? Just interviewing, being an interviewer, you know, being an interviewee. It's all, it's all about telling a story and, and telling it to, you know, the appropriate audience. I, I tend to think about that with the show is, you know, I, I got to think about who I'm talking to and tailor it in that way. And that's not that I'm being inauthentic, but I'm, I'm just tailoring it to the audience that I know is listening. Absolutely right. And in this case, the audience is someone who says, I have a challenge. I need someone in this role to do certain things. And how do you convince that hiring team that you are the best person for the job? Right. Right. And Mark, you mentioned startups. So I, I have an entrepreneurial passion. I really have a high desire to get more involved in startups and learn more about the entrepreneurial process in that way. You've spent your career launching and developing new ventures, whether it be at startups, Fortune 500s, and academia. You know, you've had a lot of experience in that way. So I'm, I'm curious to ask, what advice would you give someone who wants to pursue the founding of a new company? I'd say a couple different things. One, make sure you have a safety net because the reality is most startups fail. Exactly. And so you just have to be prepared for that. You might have to move back in with your parents. You might have to have two years of cash around to pay for your food, your rent, and everything else. Be prepared for a lot of volatility. One of my favorite TV shows, Silicon Valley, and although it's a comedy, and it goes from obviously one moment things are great and the next moment things are horrible and back and forth. And that's part of the comedy in the show. Yeah. It's really not that far from reality because you will literally one day say, oh, we just hit this great milestone and we launched our new product. And then the next day you discover we have a lawsuit for a competitor preventing us from releasing this product. <laughs> yeah. And then you close a really great customer and then your head of marketing quits an hour later. These things happen to you and you just have to be prepared for that emotional roller coaster. And you have to have the drive and the passion and the commitment that through it all, you believe in this, you are happy doing it. You're not just saying, well, I'm doing it because I want to be rich at the end. You enjoy doing it despite all the chaos. And that's how you're going to succeed. If you don't have that passion, if you can't wake up and say, despite the setbacks, I'm still excited to do this, you'll be, you'll be disappointed at times, but you still have that underlying, I'm still excited to be here. If you don't have that, it's going to be a lot harder to be successful. Yeah, I totally agree on that, Mark. And I, I really think, I mean, internally reflecting on that really helps, I think, in just knowing what you're getting yourself into. And you need to be passionate about it. And I think that's a really important point. So anybody listening that has those desires like myself that wants to get involved in entrepreneurship, you know, as, as Elon Musk said, I believe starting a company is like 
eating glass and swallowing it and, and doing it time and time again. So I, I think I think about that often. I'm like, gosh, that, you know, it sounds awful. And obviously you have to be doing it for the right reasons to, to continue down that path. Exactly. You better learn to like glass because even though you hope to shit a glass swan, <laughs> it might not come out exactly as you're expecting it. So I hope you enjoyed the meal. Yeah, man. That's crazy. And, and Mark, I, I want to talk a little bit about your experience with MIT. So you, you said you're an MIT grad. That's your alma mater. You helped to even start a, an undergraduate practice opportunities program. And this is dubbed the MIT's Career Success Accelerator. So one of the core questions of my show is, is asking what is success? So I want to hear you define that. But I also just want to hear before that just a little bit about this Career Success Accelerator and, and how it's important for undergraduate students. Years ago, companies came to MIT, we surveyed them, and they said, these are the skills we want to have in our employees, but we can't find. They're the skills we named earlier in the show, the leadership, networking, negotiating, communicating. Companies want this, but couldn't find it. And this is not just true for MIT students. I've seen other surveys from other schools as well. In fact, it's not just true for students, for undergrads. These are universal skills companies want, but as we spoke about earlier, they're not being taught. Given this feedback, MIT said, we have to address this. And thanks to a wonderful grant from Desh Despande, we started up this program and we said, they're not getting it in the calculus class. They're not getting it in their biology class. They're not getting it in the history class. We need to put together something that gets these skills into our undergraduate population. And that's why we started the class. And I've been fortunate enough to teach there for the past 20 years. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great experience. And I'm sure you've learned a lot about what success means to you. So if you were to say, I mean, even in a 30 second pitch of what your definition of success is, what would you say that is, Mark? And I'm sure it's changed over time, but at this current moment, what do you think success means to you? For me personally, as opposed to success in general, is that what you're asking? For You know, you could take it either way. What, whatever, whatever angle you want to take with this, I'd, I'd be interested to hear. Success in general means to me either achievement of your goal in the here and now or getting further on your path to that goal. And that's a slightly broader definition than most people would give. Most people say, oh, well, success is achievement of the goal. Yeah. But for many of us, particularly who are entrepreneurs, where we know, okay, this startup has a good chance of failing. Chances are I'm not going to do this exactly how I thought it would go. I can still feel successful even if I didn't achieve that initial goal. If along the way I grew and it's getting me towards a long-term goal that makes me happy. And I would consider that a success. You often hear founders say, you know, the startup failed, but I learned so much or it got me to my next thing. And that can be a success too. So I take a broader definition of success in an abstract sense. Yeah. I, I love thinking about that too, of, of, you know, a failure can actually be a success. And you, you know, anybody that's looked at enough entrepreneurs and, and their stories, you're really not going to find many of them that hit it on their first idea or got successful right away. I mean, Sure, it's going to take time, but a lot of them have failures along the way, failed companies or failed ideas. You know, look back at even some really incredible athletes. Michael Jordan, you know, had some setbacks early, early on in his career before he became one of the greatest of all time. So I think it's important to, to realize that failure can actually become success. So, Mark, I mean, I think that's incredibly insightful. Let's even think about the pharma industry. Penicillin, that <laughs> experiment was a failure. That Petri dish got contaminated and did not work out as planned, the goal was not achieved, 
but obviously a much better goal came out of it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you just think, you know, you could think of several examples about that. So I think that's, I think that's an incredibly insightful point to, to remember and should motivate those of you listening that if you're experiencing some failure or setbacks, it's not the end. You know, there's, there's time to press on. And like, like Mark had shared, if you're creating successful steps to your goals, you're achieving success in the here and now. So that should motivate you to, to continue pushing forward. If you're going to define success narrowly, if you define success as this is what I want to see in my Petri dish, then you're going to have a lot of failures. If you define it as I want to make interesting scientific discoveries, then even these near-term setbacks can lead you towards that goal and be considered a successful step along the way. So it's really widening your aperture and defining success in a very broad long-term way that's, that lets these short-term setbacks suddenly be viewed as helping you achieve that bigger goal. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of achieving your goals, using your career toolkit book, I think would be a really great step for someone listening to do that. So I want to just ask you about the mobile app that you've created, because I know it's designed to be a companion to the book. So those audience members that maybe think, oh, I'm not a big reader and you know, I don't really know how to apply this without reading the book. How can this app maybe help them if they just go on the app store or on their you know, Android and download that? There's two things you can do if you're not a big reader. First is the app. That's a completely free app on the Android and iPhone stores. As long as you open it at least once a day, once a month, so we know that you're active, then what's going to do is going to pop up one of the tips from the book. You've heard some of them on the show. It's just going to pop that up as a notification on your phone. You don't even have to open the app. Because you've heard lots of great advice on the show, you might have read it in the book, but then you get busy, you read other books, you have projects, and it's hard to keep it top of mind. So with this app, once a day at a time you set, it's going to give you a little notification. It's like, oh, right, when I get a brain teaser question, I should talk through it. Okay, good reminder, swipe, done. Takes you two seconds. Or as you're about to go into an interview, as say you're riding the subway to that job interview, you can open up the app and swipe through those tips and say, hey, okay, what, are, what do I have to remember? Okay, right, this, that, or that was a good point and get that crash course refresher. So the app is completely free and contains a lot of the great advice. The other thing you can do on the resources page of the careertoolkitbook.com is the first download is how you can create peer learning groups at your organization. And if your company doesn't want to do this, go create a local meetup group and do it. What you want to do is get a group of people. I recommend sizes of about six to eight people, but there are ways you can do it bigger. Get some people together and say, you know what? We want to develop these skills, leadership, communication, negotiating, whatever the skills are, one particular skill or a lot of the skills. And then what you want to do is get a little bit of content. Now that could come from my book. You can say, we're going to read these 10 pages. You can use a different book, read 10 pages from something else. You can use an article. You can use a video. You can use a great podcast like this one. Say, we're all going to listen to this episode and then come together and discuss it because it's in that discussion. That's where you get the richness of understanding these subtle and complex skills. It's not just, well, I read it, therefore I know it you have to engage with it. And these peer learning groups let you do it. There's no cost, you create it on your own. You can take free content like podcasts like this if you don't wanna use my book. And that's gonna really help you grow in your development as well as increase your network as you begin to build relationships with other people in this group. Yeah, what an incredible resource. And everybody listening on the show notes of, of this episode, 
you'll find the career toolkit book.com, like Mark just mentioned. And I'll also tag how to download that app, whether you're on App Store, Android, however you might be downloading it. I think that's a great first step to just getting on the right path of, of creating that career plan. So, I mean, I think you really can't go wrong. I think that's an incredible resource that Mark has. And I want to ask you, Mark, I got one more question for you, and it kind of focuses on a little bit different angle here, but some of the audience members, probably all of them actually, who don't know you personally, will not know that you were once ranked one of the top ballroom dancers in the country. So just share a little bit about that and, and what your passion is about ballroom dancing and how you got into it or what, what makes it so meaningful for you. I joined just after I graduated from MIT. I had a girlfriend at the time who decided she wanted to join the MIT ballroom dance team, which apparently meant I had decided I wanted to join the <laughs> MIT ballroom dance team. But I'm very grateful that decision was made. And because it's not an NCAA sport, even as faculty, staff, and alumni, we could be members of the team, which was fantastic because we had this wonderful community, this wonderful team where we all encouraged and helped each other. And what most people don't know, the MIT ballroom team, certainly back in the late 90s and early 2000s when I was there, we were arguably the top team in the country. BYU might have an equal claim and there was no head-to-head -head competition, but just looking at how we did, we produced some of the top dancers in the country. So MIT actually had one of the top ballroom dance teams. I got to travel all over the country. I went to England. It was just an amazing time. It's a super fun activity, and I made wonderful friends doing it. Thanks for sharing, Mark. I think that's really unique. I read that in your bio, and I was like, I, I got to ask him about this. This is really cool. So Mark, if anybody listening wants to get in contact with you, what would be the best way to go about that? Are you on any social media or LinkedIn? How can they reach out to you? You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. You can learn more about the book, contact me, follow me on all my social media channels. You can see where to buy the book, Amazon, other places. You can also, from the website, download that free app. And then there's the resources page that has a download about how to create these peer learning groups. I have links to other books I recommend written by other people, some I reference in my book, and then there's a whole bunch of other free online resources I link to. All of this is available at thecareertoolkitbook.com. All right, you heard it here, thecareertoolkitbook.com to reach out to Mark. Mark, I mean, I really appreciate you being on the show. I can't thank you enough for these insights you've provided, and I've learned so much in this last 40 minutes or so talking to you and I know that the audience is going to be just ecstatic to have learned all this uh, great resource that you provided. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. And everybody listening, keep an eye out. We're going to have a little promotion going on on Instagram, an opportunity to win a copy of Mark's book. Mark, cannot thank you enough for being on the Eric Mueller Show, sir. You have a wonderful evening. Thank you. You too. <laughs> 